Amen. Brilliant. Thanks, Mark. Um, I love the book of Acts. I love uh, reading about the kind of Acts of the Apostles, the early church. It's a book that I'm often drawn back to. Um, and I think that's because I love the church, the kind of global church. Um, how many of you here have spent most of your life in and around church of one sort or another? Uh, for some of you, I know you're pretty new converts, but quite a few people. Okay, so most of us, I, I like many of you, was brought up going to church, various forms of church. I've spoken about this before, Baptist Church, United Reformed Church, Village Anglican Church, Swinging from the Chandeliers, Charismatic Church. I've kind of done the range. And actually, the truth is, most of us probably who have been around church for any amount of time um, will have had mixed experiences of church. Some good, some not so good. And maybe it's appropriate for me to start by saying, um, you know, in this church, which is a relatively new church where we're hoping to kind of make uh, church and be obedient to God's call, we won't always get it right. I know we've not always got it right. We're exploring what God's doing, and amongst the busyness of stuff, sometimes we get it wrong. So if you're part of this church, or part of another church where you've been hurt, I want to say, as the leader, as the leader of this church, I'm really sorry for where we've got it wrong. That's not just something I say, I mean that. I'm really sorry when we haven't communicated well, when we haven't been effective in ministry, when we've disappointed. And, and that's something we want to make better, we want to learn, we want to grow. And actually that's kind of a grown-up conversation, being able to say that, rather than thinking, oh well, you know, we'll just we'll cover over it. Sometimes it's owning our own stuff. I recognize that in my own life. I have to recognize that as a father, as a husband, as a friend, that there are times when I really don't get it right. But we want to get it right. I don't want to stay with the status quo of church being a place that kind of gets things wrong and you just sort of move on. I want to be a place where God's holiness transforms us, me as a leader, transforms us as a community so that we're not a place of unhealed, wounded hearts, but we're a place where together we journey into what it means to be whole and healed. And when I look at the church in, in Acts, I see some vibrant expression of church that excites me. But I also recognize that at times we look back, we were talking about this just before in the prayer time. You know, when I was little, I remember looking back at my summer holidays. And in my mind, they were always sunny and glorious, hot, long holidays that seemed to go on for months. And it never rained. And when I think of Christmas, they were always spectacular. And Mark said he remembers Christmas Eve, it always used to snow. And you kind of go back and you have all these thoughts that probably weren't quite really real. <laughs> you just remember the good bits. And, and sometimes as we look back at Acts, we see all the spectacular, exciting fruits. I'm, but I know for a fact that they clearly had a lot of challenges in their midst, and maybe they're not all recorded there. Often in the letters that Paul writes, you kind of realize the problems that he's trying to address in the church. But there was a kind of dewy-eyed excitement amongst those guys. There was a passion and an enthusiasm. And there's stuff that I think we can learn from them. And tonight I want to... I want to learn from these guys in Acts. I want to learn about what drove them. We can look at what they did, but more importantly, why did they do that? Why did they live like they did? Why did they live in community? Why did they live vibrantly together in such a passionate way? I've had all sorts of experiences in church. Some of it really, really not so good. I've experienced fundamentalist churches where pastors used power, manipulation, and anger to run the church with a rod of iron and everyone obeyed and no one questioned. I've seen all sorts of challenges and difficulties in church, churches that have gone horribly wrong, churches where leaders have fallen from grace, have got into all sorts of messes and brought the whole gospel into disrepute, and it's traumatic. I've seen churches fall apart over stupid things, like whether or not candles are kind of, you know, really bad things to use. Seriously, I knew a church in Bristol that got to that point. 
I've seen well-meaning churches. I've seen churches that seem to be irrelevant, churches that are too cool, churches that are too flash, too self-occupied, too busy. And I've been in a lot of them, and I've been part of leadership in some of those. But even though I've had lots of bad experiences in church in many ways, and probably even though I've caused, and I'm really sorry for some people's bad experiences in church, because we are humans, when I read passages like this one we just heard about, when I look at Acts, I get excited and I think surely the church is supposed to be where there's a taste of heaven at its best. An exciting place where God's presence is made known and where transformation happens and people get captivated by the thought of a loving God who's for them. And they get healed and they get delivered and they get set free and they become passionate keys that go out to unlock situations and people's lives like Bill so beautifully described. That's what the church is called to be. Christ has promised that he'll build his church even against the opposition of hell. Matthew 16 says that. And so I decided, you know what, as a kind of young guy, as a young adult, well, if Christ is building his church, if he's making it something special, and he's making a local church, which is, he's passionate about, then I want to be involved. I guess in many ways that's why I'm a church pastor now, I'm a leader, because I want to be involved in what he's doing. And so there's this text that we heard about, that we just heard, read from the message, that gives a kind of snapshot of a really healthy local church. Straight after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's been poured out, and it seems glorious, it seems magnificent. There's all this kind of 3,000 people added overnight to them. They've suddenly grown, they've leapt up, and God is at work in their midst. Now Rick Warren, some of you will have heard of Rick Warren. Uh, he's uh, a church leader. He's written a lot of number of books. Senior pastor of Saddleback Church in California, and he's written um, Purpose Driven Church, Purpose Driven Life, lots and lots of other books. And much of it is really helpful on church um, ministries, shape of church life, and all the rest of it. He says this: Strong churches are built on purpose. The starting point for every church should be the question: Why do we exist? purpose. But I think purpose is really important. And it's a really good question to ask as a church leader. What are we here for? What's this church for? Does Bath need another church? Does it really need another church plant? Does it really need another one? And what difference are we going to make? There's, there's all sorts of flavors and styles of church around. Are we just copying them? Are we just doing something because, you know, we want to be busy? Or are we here because we believe that God has called us to be here? Well, I'm here because I believe God has called us to be here. But maybe we want to catch a bit of a glimpse of what it's about. And asking that question, why do we exist as a church, is really important. Some of you may remember me talking about this quite some time ago. But I read an article in the New York Times um, a couple of years back. And it was quoting this story. Back in 1985, a celebration took place at a municipal swimming pool in New Orleans. Uh, the party around the pool was held to celebrate the first summer in living memory without a drowning at the New Orleans city pool. And so they had a party. In honor of the occasion, 200 people gathered, including 100 certified lifeguards. As the party was breaking up and ending, and the four lifeguards on duty for the party began to clear the pool, they found a fully dressed body in the deep end. They tried to revive Jerome Moody, he was 31, but it was too late. He had drowned, surrounded by 100 lifeguards, celebrating their successful season kind of comical except it's tragic 
And you know, sometimes, too often, I think the church gets a little bit like this swimming pool. We can so easily lose sight of what we're about. We lose our way. And it's a tragedy waiting to happen. The church in the West often has misunderstood or lost what its real purpose is about. You know, we can gather together and that's nice and that's good and we can have a nice time, but you can join a golf club for that or your local gym. What are we here for? Why are we here? And it can be tragic to understand what what are we really for? Maybe particularly us as an Anglican church. What are we here for? Are we an institution? A civic amenity? A centre for learning? A hospital? An army? A historic anachronistic modern irrelevance? Maybe. Who knows? Well, hopefully we do. Because I think we're supposed to have a purpose. Jesus speaking to Peter in Matthew 16, as I said, said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So Jesus is and wants to build his church. He's building his church. We're evidence of that. You know, we've come from where there was no church here. A few years ago, there was no church in this building. Now there's a church. And Jesus doesn't build things, therefore, on a whim. He has a purpose. He has a purpose. Do we know what his purpose is? And so often, sadly, what often begins with the Spirit, Jesus saying, I'm going to build my church. We too quickly move into the architect's seat, form a planning committee, take over, not just the planning phase, but the design, the supervision, and the construction of the church. And if it doesn't work out very well, well, we pull it down, or we move to another one and try somewhere else. I've said this before, that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. But sadly, I think the church has often looked at society, saw there's need for change, see that people need to become Christians, and just keeps trying to do the same old stuff. But if I'm honest, it hasn't really worked. The UK hasn't dramatically turned to Christ. In fact, for many people in in society, the church has become less and less relevant. But that's not God's plan for the church to disappear. Rick Warren, in a book called Taking God Seriously, said this. There are two basic reasons why people don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. One, they've never met a Christian. Or two, they've met a Christian. We laugh at it, but it's sadly true that often we as church have been our own or the gospel's worst enemy. We've actually not been a help, but sometimes we've been a hindrance to people coming to faith because they look at the church and go, well, what on earth would I want with that? If that's Christianity... You know, Gandhi was the one who said, if, if, if us Christians really took the scriptures seriously and lived in the way that it said, then the whole world would be set on fire. But so often we don't. And we become an institution or we become something wh- where we struggle to understand what our purpose is. I think what we're called to be, our purpose, is to be a place of extravagant love. To model something that this world desperately needs and longs for. To be people who have received God's extravagant love, who pour it out back to him in worship that's authentic and from the heart, having experienced his love, who splash it liberally amongst ourselves, pour out our love to one another, that actually shocks the world with the quality of the love. 
and then who go out into the darkest corners of the world to the least, the last, the lost and the seemingly unlovable and love them lavishly and extravagantly. That's what the church is supposed to be, the body of Christ on earth. He loved us so we could love him and love one another and love the world. Genesis 2.18 says that it's not good for man to be alone. God made one human being and then said, they don't come by themselves, they're not supposed to. Something about unity and community. You and I were created for community. That's why the concept of community is so important. And that's why in the early church, they grasped something of what it means to be community. See, we read Acts 2 or Acts 4, and it's radical, selfless, giving of oneself to your community. It's outrageous. But that's because I think they understood what community was supposed to be. Now, it says in that scripture that they met every day. And part of us goes, well, I can't meet every day. I have a life. I get that. I get that perhaps circumstances are different maybe for some of us. They lived a different lifestyle. But you get a sense of for them what community meant. It wasn't a, a thing that they went to once a week. There's a vital issue at the heart of this. The point is, as I look at you all, we're all in this together. <laughs> we're, all, we're all in this together. That's how it's supposed to be. It's pretty assumed, I think, we, we sort of kind of vaguely get that. But I think that we forget that God has existed forever in perfect relationship, in perfect community. The Father has a perfect relationship with the Son and the Holy Spirit, as does each with the other. I've talked about this before. I will go on about it until Jesus comes back. And when he comes back, I'll tell him how cool it was. The perichoresis. This eternal, glorious dance of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When you're trying to understand kind of the biblical concept of the Trinity. Perichoresis isn't a word you're going to find in the Bible, by the way. Um, it's a Greek word. But it, it was kind of brought by the early church, used by the early church fathers to describe this beautiful community of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being perfectly embraced in love and harmony and expressing an intimacy and a oneness with the other. You, might, you, know, you can have Venn diagrams, can't you? And they express a little bit about this interconnectedness of the Father and the Son. The Father flows into the Son and the Spirit. The Son flows into the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit flows into the Father and the Son. There's this beautiful intimacy and oneness and honoring uh, and kind of beautiful merging of them together in love and honor. And you and me, we are called to live in this perichoretical relationship, if you want to put it that way. It's a constant flowing into one another. We're called to model that amongst ourselves. This beautiful flowing in and out of one another's lives. And us as Western people battle slightly against that. I'm not sure I want you in my life. I can tell you all thinking. But actually the church is called for us to open up the barriers and say, you know what? I'm going to invite you into my life. I want to be invited into Not in an intrusive way that pushes open doors and becomes kind of... You know, like when you go around someone's house and you want to look in their cupboards. You want to look in their wardrobes. You really want to, but you know you're a good guest, so you shouldn't. Or when someone moves into a house, you want to have the guided tour because you want to be nosy to see how big the bedrooms are and how much, you know, you, there is a bit of that in us. I get that. We're not talking about that. We're talking about being involved in one another's life in a beautiful, beautiful way. It's a desire to be family together, to be the family of Christ, to have a really deep love for one another, 
so that we do cry with one another when things are tough. Like when Mark says, when the sun seems to disappear behind a cloud and someone's grieving, instead of going, wow, that's because there's a cloud in front of the sun, or trying to give her, we just go, wow, that must really hurt for you. We, we love one another. We try and be there for one another. And when we celebrate together, we can do that as well, to truly be family. And if the world saw that quality of love demonstrated within the church, they would look in awe and wonder. That's what scripture says. By this all men will know you're my disciples, if you love one another. And the world will look at that and see true Christ-centered love and be amazed. What would happen if the church really became the church God intended it to be? Not an institution, not a kind of nice golf club, not something that's forgotten what it's there for, but this beautiful community of love. So often we think about, we're, we're all in this alone. Some of you tonight will be here and feel quite alone. Maybe you feel like the church hasn't been a family to you. And if that's true for you here in this church, and I'm really sorry, because we've got it wrong. It's supposed to be better than that, and we want to be a place where you feel part of something. You may not want to be, you might not be one of those people who want to be at the centre. Maybe you feel actually safe at the fringes. But we want you to feel that you can do that and still be valued and loved just the same. You're not going to be loved anymore because you do stuff. Those who do lots of stuff, we don't want to love them more because they do stuff. We want to love you equally, whether you're in pain or whether you're in joy, whether you're able to give lots, whether you're able to give little. Family is how it's supposed to be. And in that, we experience Christ's power, his grace, his mercy, his peace, his strength. And we experience that through one another often. Western culture celebrates individualism and personal achievement. But we follow a Messiah who celebrates community. When Jesus invited the disciples to come, follow me, he used the plural. It wasn't just you. Yes, we have a personal relationship with Jesus. But he's actually saying, come, I used to have an intern who worked with me from America and she used to use the word y'all. Come y'all. And that's kind of what Jesus is saying there but without the American accent. Come y'all and follow me into the great adventure which is supposed to be the building of my church. We're all in this together, says Jesus. We all get to play. We all get to feel a part. And maybe where you haven't yet felt a part, like I say, I'm sorry. Or when you felt, felt like you've fallen out the back of church, I've done that in my, my past and felt like a kind of a left out piece of a jigsaw. That hurts. That's not how it's supposed to be and I'm sorry if you feel like that. We want to be family together. We want to make it better. So the church we saw in that passage was in its infancy and it got so much right, perhaps more than we'll ever know or imagine, they ensured the power of community by ensuring all who believed were together and had all things in common. So they shared stuff. They lived together. They prayed together. They fellowshiped together. What's really interesting is, and I was saying this to the guys earlier on, you can look at what they did, you know, the teaching and the breaking of bread, which I think was more than just communion. I think it was eating together. Because in culture, you would eat bread, you would break bread together, you would eat together and share communion in that context. So what Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. There's something really important about eating together. That's why as a church, we want to eat more and more together. That's why we as a leadership team, we meet <coughs> once a month. We all break bread together, we eat together, we drink wine together. 
I don't know why I laugh then. We drink wine together. We uh, share community together. It's really important we do that. And as a wider team, we want to do that. But why did they live like that? What was, what was imp- did someone say, I think we should probably break bread together regularly. I think we should probably pray every morning. I think we should probably, well, maybe we should share our, our, our money. Some people were more positive about that than others. Tends to be the people that didn't have much money were very positive about sharing stuff together. I'm sure that was the reality of it. But was it someone said you should do this? Or was it something... Because my question is, if you just tell people they should do that, they might do it for a while, but they won't do it for long. It's not the fruit, it's the roots that we need to look at. Why did they do this? People tend to base their decisions on one of four motivations in life, it's been said. Circumstances, conveniences, criticisms or convictions. People make decisions from four motivations. Circumstances, conveniences, criticisms or convictions. But only decisions based on our convictions will last and leave a legacy. (coughs) See, I think these guys decided to live in this community way because they couldn't imagine doing anything else because they had a deep conviction that had been burnt into their heart that made them live in this radical, radical way. Something had captured them. It wasn't some good teaching or an inspirational video. It was something that had kind of been burnt into their heart. This is the only way we can live now. We've got to give our lives to this completely. It wasn't the invitation to join an institution, not the blessing of an easy or blessed financial assured life, but they were convinced utterly that Jesus was Lord and worth giving their all to follow him and be known by him. And so if we're going to build convictions as individuals and as a church, we need to build them on something that's going to last. If this church, if the church in this nation is going to change the world, we need to have strong convictions about who we are, about what we stand for, about what our purpose is, going back to the beginning. I don't want to knock particular churches, but I've been too long part of a kind of church culture, which is about growing this really big beast. And I've been working in church ministry for 20-something years, and I've been part of really big, successful churches, and God's been so good and gracious and done incredible things with them. I've seen the miraculous breakout. It's beautiful. But of late, I've realized that I know what I've felt like. I felt like the fireman on a steam train, endlessly shoveling coal quicker and quicker into a massive furnace, trying to keep this thing on the tracks. And the furnace is consuming more and more power, so we have to get more coal in. And the coal is people's lives and people's energies and people's talents. And you shovel and you shovel as a leader and you're trying to get stuff into the furnace and the furnace gets bigger and bigger and and consumes more. And the train's speeding along and there's smoke and there's smell everywhere and it's getting faster and faster and faster. And I never even get a chance to look out the window. And most of the people don't even know where the train's going. I don't think Christ's bride is supposed to be like this big consuming engine that we're trying to keep burning. It's supposed to be a beautiful family, a vibrant place of love and welcome. And then we we wonder why people don't want to get on the train because it just looks like this big metal brute that's hurtling along, covered in steam and grime. Maybe Jesus wants us to remember what the church is supposed to be. A place of family, a place of love, a place of transformation, a place of healing, a place that actually enjoys the journey that God's calling us to go on together. So what are our convictions? Well, 
Uh, I'm again taking from um, Rick. Name's gone out of my head. Rick Warren. He's used some of these. We could add others, but I'm going to get with through six convictions that I think if we get as church and individuals, maybe it will change our whole church culture and change the world. They're really six really simple things, but if we bed them into our lives, these six convictions will help us shape church in a way that I think we should. We're just going to whiz them up now. The first one is a really simple one, really obvious, but it's this. It's all about God. Seems really obvious, doesn't it? But actually... It's all about God. That's what it's supposed to be. The church is not about me. It's not about profit. It's not about reputation. It's not about name. It's not about growing bigger and bigger and bigger for its own sake. It's not about politics or profit. It's simply supposed to all be about God. I love this verse in Romans 11:36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I'm going to say that again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. I don't care about reputation. Not in terms of reputation of building reputation at St. Matt's or about what we're doing here. I'm not interested in building a platform that I can speak on where people can see us or hear about us. I, I, I don't want to do that. All I want is to build an altar where people can fall down and worship Jesus. That's what we should be about as church. That's what the whole church is supposed to be about. It's all about God. He's building the church and it's for his glory. Loving God and exalting him is more important than anything else. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. That's what we're called to. And if we ever lose sight of that, then we're really in trouble. If it becomes more about us, then we're doing something catastrophically wrong. And we're letting people drown in the swimming pool because we're not looking at what we're supposed to be doing. It's all about God. British actor Michael Wilding was once asked if actors had any traits which set them apart from other human beings. Without a doubt, he replied, you can pick out actors by the glazed look that comes into their eyes when the conversation wanders away from themselves. Ouch. <laughs> we should never be talking about ourselves. We should always be talking about Jesus. We should always be talking about the Father's love, the glory of the Holy Spirit, his wonders and his goodness and his grace. That's what the early church did. They couldn't shut up talking about God. Some of us, we need to rediscover that, don't we? Going back to our first love. Number two, only the church will last forever. Matthew 16, 18, I've said it a few times. On this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell, gates of Hades will not overcome it. Ultimately, nothing will overcome the church. Don't believe the Daily Mail. The church is not dead. <laughs> the church is not disappearing and irrelevant. Nothing on earth will last. No business, no government, no politics, no politician, no nation but the church will overcome and endure. It's glorious. It's, it's incredible. It's magnificent, the church. Often we look at the church and we see it looking filthy and drab and downtrodden and embarrassing. Jesus looks at his bride and sees it as resplendent and glorious. He loves his bride. I've made a covenant with God never to speak down about any part of the church. 
There are parts of the church whose theology I don't necessarily agree with. There are parts of the church whose practice is really questionable. There's parts of the church that I struggle with because it feels a long way from the kingdom. But I never want to speak a word against the church. Why? Because Christ loves his bride, his church. We've got to stop bad-mouthing the church and start realizing the church is people, but the church is God's beloved bride magnificent and spectacular and God will transform God will challenge us we're the church I'm the church when I point the finger at the church and accuse I realize I'm standing in a mirror and I'm pointing back at me because I'm the church when I criticize the bride I'm the bride I'm part of it I need to look at my own heart it's going to endure and hell hates the church but hell will never overcome the church It has the strength of God to overcome the gates of hell. Hell will not win the final victory because Jesus loves the bride. And what does that mean for us? If we're going to live together forever, we better start getting along now. This is your opportunity to practice. And sometimes we grit our teeth and pray for grace. (laughs) I'm sure you do with me all the time. But that's okay because we've got eternity to get it right. God doesn't want us to tolerate the church. God wants us to love the church. Christ's bride. Number three, God expects me to love everybody else. <laughs> Life is not about acquisition of stuff or achievements or popularity. It's about learning to love. The second commandment is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. So who's our neighbor? Well, we haven't got time to go into it. You know the story of the Good Samaritan. Basically, the point of the story of the Good Samaritan is your neighbor is whoever God brings across your path. It's kind of everyone out there. The world's your lobster. Everybody. Even the unlovely, unlovable, unlikable people, the people who are different, the people who are difficult. It's easy to love people who agree with us. Luke 6, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. God wants us to love our enemies. That's a challenge, isn't it? I'm always incredibly moved when you read stories of persecution around the world. I've read some terrible things recently that have been happening in churches in Pakistan, India, and other places. Hand grenades thrown into churches. I I mentioned that last week, I think. People losing their wives, spouses, children, and saying, I want to pray for those people that have committed those atrocities. I want to forgive them. I want to love them. I want them to find Christ. I can't imagine what it would be like if that happened to me, whether I'd have the grace to do that. But I'm deeply moved that the church is supposed to be full of forgiveness and compassion towards those who hate us. That when we're spat at and reviled, we offer the other cheek and we look them back in the face and we say, I love you. Today, that's happening to Christians who are saying, I love you, to people who are putting guns in their heads. That's the power of love that the world cannot understand and Satan has no mechanism to fight against because love always conquers. Love always wins. God expects his bride to love in this extravagant way. Why? Because he's loved us like that. I don't deserve God's love. I'm a wretch. But the Father loves me and has redeemed me. And I've experienced his love. We need to learn to pour that love out to others. 
God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Number Conviction number four that we need to have as church. The whole world needs Jesus. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the why we go, because it's not a great suggestion. It's a great command, the greatest of commands, to go. And it's not go to some nations, it's go to all nations. We're called to go, and some here are going to go to nations, and some are going to go to Twerton. And sometimes that journey is even harder. Or to go to your neighbour next door. Or to go to your brother or your mum or your dad. We're called to go because to keep the good news a secret is criminal. If we knew the cure for cancer and we didn't tell anyone, it would be madness. We know the cure for the darkness and bondage of the world. It's Jesus Christ. We do believe that, right? We do believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Maybe some of you here are exploring that. Well, that's cool. But those of us who count ourselves as Christians do actually believe that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus, right? Not massively politically correct saying that right now, but I believe that's true. The only way to know the Father is through Jesus Christ because either Jesus is a liar or that's true. No one comes to the Father except through me. If that's truth, that's a serious message. It's not about exclusion, it's about inclusion, saying God wants you to come to him and you can do it through Jesus. The whole world needs Jesus whether they know it or not. The whole world needs to have its past forgiven, to have a purpose for living and a home in heaven. We need Jesus. The world needs Jesus. Number five, that seems tough, it seems difficult, it seems a challenge, but everything is possible with God. Say everything. Now say it like you mean it. <laughs> I like being Pentecostal briefly. <clears throat> Everything is possible with God. I wonder whether you believe that. Well, there are times when we do believe it, when we see God do amazing miracles, and there are times we struggle, perhaps when we need to see a miracle, but it is true. Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Is Jesus a liar? I ask you again. With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Some of us here have seen God do outrageous miracles. I've seen legs grow right in front of me. Sarah in India last year saw a woman who had never seen her grandchild healed an elderly woman in one of these Indian villages. She went to pray, receive her sight back again. Peter on Hots has seen incredible, numerous miracles. I've seen people transformed. I've seen sicknesses go. I've seen oppressed people set free. I've seen people in utter bondage and captivity given hope. I've seen someone in utter desperation as they prayed receive laughter in the midst of their pain. Things sometimes seem impossible, but God is a God of breakthrough and transformation. We need to believe that. When we go out into the streets around Whitcomb, when we share the gospel with people who don't yet know him, when we look at this building and think we've got this massive barn of a place and we sense God calling us to transform it into an apostolic centre and it's going to cost us three quarters of a million. <laughs> well, if God's in it, then it's not a problem because with God all things are possible. It's not an issue. We need to learn, sometimes not in our time scale, but with God all things are possible. 
A famous missionary to China said these words. There are three stages in any great work attempted for God. Impossible, difficult, done. Quite like that. Three great stages in any great work attempted for God. Maybe in the transformation of this building. Impossible, difficult, done. Last thing, number six. We need to have this conviction that history's conclusion is inevitable. I've said this before. My dad is a great reader. He reads lots of kind of all sorts of books, biographies, but he loves a good kind of spy thriller and a kind of mystery, which is kind of passed on to me a bit. But I've said this before. It's, I still find it a little bit outrageous. Before he buys any book, he'll go and stand in Smith's. That's why he won't buy them off the internet. He goes and stands in Smith's or a bookshop and he reads the last six pages just to check the ending is going to be okay. I still find that quite outrageous. And if he thinks the ending's not happy or good or kind of exciting, or he'll put it down and then won't buy it. I'm like, Dad, you can't do that. He's like, hey, I'm in my 80s. I can do what I want. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, <laughs> I, but I kind of get it. He wants to know the ending. If you've not... The one book I'm going to allow you to do that with is the Bible. It's good to flip to the end and read what happens. It's a good ending. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. Matthew tells us that. Never before in the history of the world have we had the capacity to preach the gospel to all nations like we do today. I've seen some staggering statistics from YWAM about how the gospel is reaching the ends of the earth. And it still slightly gives me shivers down my spine. But the way the gospel is going out to the nations, the number of missionary movements that are going around the world now, perhaps you know, in the West we don't see it because we see the church struggling, but when you look at Asia, when you look at South America, when you look at North America, parts of Alaska, parts of Canada where the church is kind of outrageously growing, when you look at um, parts of uh, Africa, right the way to various parts of Africa, across Asia, China, even into kind of Siberia, some other parts up in Russia, you see these incredible movements into what was to be the 1040 window, the kind of bit that no one could get to, the Middle East, Iran, Iraq, some of those countries. The gospel is going out incredibly. Like I've said before, there in Iran, there are imams having dreams of Jesus, then leading whole communities to Christ. There's an incredible move of God's spirit going across the world, and YWAM's done some research into the gospel going into all these nations, the nations that a few years ago were locked down and where the gospel couldn't get in. Now, because of the radio, because of shortwave radio going into some of these nations, missionaries who are going in undercover, countries that are beginning to open up, these countries are now being reached with the gospel. And the figures were saying, you know what? In the next five, ten years, we could reach the ends of the earth. We could do this. We could reach the whole world with the gospel. We've got a generation who are willing to do it. We've got young people who are willing to go out and, and, and give their lives for Jesus to do this. We've got a church in some places that's rising up. In China, the underground church is outrageously growing still. Some 200 million Christians exploding in the underground church, seeing incredible miracles. We have the capacity to see the end come. What's that going to look like? I don't know. That's a preach on eschatology for another day. With modern technology and travel easier, language becoming less and less a barrier, the gospel can be preached to the ends of the earth. 
As I said, the, the results in the mission fields are astonishing at the moment. Hordes are coming to Christ. In many ways, the West, Europe, is the dark continent. And now, South America, Bolivia, Argentina are sending missionaries to England, to France. Chinese missionaries, missionaries coming up from Africa. Because they sense the end is coming and the place that needs to be hit last is almost Europe, where the great gospel movements actually started from. I met an Argentinian pastor who's <laughs> got some ludicrously vast church. And he knelt down in front of me and he said, we're here to serve you, our brothers. You gave us the gospel. We're bringing it home. When you read the end of the book, Revelation, we win. We need to be a church that's confident, a church that's expectant, a church that's hopeful, a true community of radical believers, radical learners, radical servants, radical worshippers, a community of love, extravagant, radical, outpoured love for one another, for our Father in heaven, Son, the Spirit, and love for the world. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, I love your church. And I'm sorry.